The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we come into your presence, a mix of belief and unbelief. I'm thankful, Lord, that you welcome us. And I'm thankful that you are willing to stretch out your hand and to address our weaknesses, our fears, our sin, and to grow in us belief. And from that faith, obedience. And from such obedience, a renewed enjoyment of nearness to you and a depth of relationship with you that is joy and life. You are willing to do that for us and in us. And I say thank you. And then I ask you to do that now here in this room. To draw near to work in my soul and in the souls of the men and women and boys and girls who, who are here in this room even now to work in us to see in us belief and unbelief and to grow us in faith and in obedience and in enjoyment of you and in life. God, we look to you for that. We need that from you. And I ask you to use your word this morning towards that end and to give order to my thinking and order to my words. Give order to our listening and order to our application. That what you have to say to us would come clear and would affect your people here. Lord, you've given us your word. And among other places, the Psalms talk about how it is a treasure and a delight and a sweetness, a blessing to us. And I pray, grow in us an appreciation and an obedience to that word. <coughs> Lord, look on your church today. Teach us, grow us, be honored by what you make us to be. And thank you for coming near. Come near to us in Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. This morning we turn our attention once again to 1 Samuel chapter 15 where we'll look at the main issues in the passage that we avoided last week. If you were here last week, we, you'll know that we were in this same chapter looking at something different, kind of looking at a, a sub-theme to chapter 15, the question of God's destruction of peoples or societies. An issue that comes up in the chapter, but also comes up in a, in a bunch of other places in the Old Testament. And sometimes... 
when we come upon it in our reading or we hear someone talk about it, it causes some, some consternation for us, some confusion. And so we took the chance to look at it last week. And essentially, we, we, how it happens is we're reading through the Bible, we come upon something like in chapter 15 where God orders Israel, sometimes He does it Himself, but He orders Israel to go and destroy everything of Amalek. And we look at that and we say, how can that be? How can God do something like that? And it causes problems for us. So, as I said, I addressed it last week, and if, and if you want more on it, I refer you to last week's sermon. I'm going to largely skip all of that. So if you're wondering what to do with this great big question, I'm not going to touch it at all this week. Except for to say, in brief, there were two points that I talked about last week. That as we think about God's judgment and, and destruction of peoples, what we're seeing is, first we're seeing a just judge exercising his rule over his world. He has a right and a responsibility to act in a way that, that produces righteousness and justice in the world. And that's what he's doing when he executes this sort of a, of a judgment, a, a wiping out of a people. It is justice. And at the same time, it is also good in that his saving work He's wrapped up in his judging work. Think about what happens when God wipes away evil from the world. Those who were suffering under the evil or who would have suffered under the evil are saved, are spared. So it's a good thing as well as a just thing. And the second general point is that this just and this saving judgment of God prefigures the great and final day of just saving judgment. It's putting down a marker. Every time we see something like this in the Old Testament, it's putting down a marker. This much does God hate evil. This much is God motivated to utterly wipe it out. And it serves as a warning for us because there's a coming day when He will eradicate it from the earth completely. There's a warning there, which also turns to a point of marvel. When we realize that the this much that was poured out on Christ for people like you and me who trust Him. This much, this much fury, this much determination, this much wrath, Christ bore it for people like us. It's a marvelous thing. If you want more on that, again, I refer you to last week. I'm going to skip it entirely this week as we look at the main point of chapter 15 and we see how it bridges us into the next, the third section of the book of 1 Samuel. Chapter 14, you may recall, ended with a summary of Saul's reign, kind of closing the book on Saul. And though we're still dealing with Saul, as we see here 15 and on, we're headed in a different direction. And that's what we're going to look at today. God's instruction to Saul, Saul's response, and some tragic consequences that resulted. So we're going, let me read 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 35. It's, it's a lengthy chapter again. And then I'll pass back and at least make some of the most important details clear before drawing out a couple of observations. Fifteen one. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. 
Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Malachites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from from among the Amalekites, And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel... Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. And then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, To obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. 
Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow down before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. And then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gebeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The word of the Lord. A remarkable story. A remarkable story. That has one central issue, which is introduced to us in verse 1. Frames the whole basic structure of the kingship. The king of Israel was always to be a sub-king, a a king beneath the, the real king over the kingdom, but the king beneath the Lord. And Samuel says to Saul in verse 1, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, and so therefore, since you are the king, therefore listen to the words of the Lord. And that word listen is a very important word throughout this whole chapter. In one form or another, it occurs eight times here. Listening or hearing what you listen to, what you hear is, is a main issue in this chapter. And especially when it's joined to the repeated words like obey and perform, It's hard to miss the point. Introduced right here in verse 1, you are the king, you are to listen to, obey, perform, whatever God says. And here is what he says, verse 2 and following. Because of what Amalek did, go and destroy them. And it's impossible that they misunderstood what, what Samuel was saying here. This is the same sort of command they've been given when they came into the land. They were supposed to wipe out everybody in the land. They were very familiar with this. He's really clear. He, he, uh, he, he points out every single person, every single animal, kill everything, devote everything to destruction. What God wants is crystal clear. So in verses 4 to 7, Saul gathers the army and attacks them. However, verse 8, he took the king alive, didn't kill him. Verse 9, Saul and the people spared the king and all of the best of the animals. All that was good, it says. Why did they do this? Surprisingly, the reason given in the text is because they would not utterly destroy them. Why wouldn't they? Because they wouldn't. It doesn't get any more complicated than that. They looked at the animals and the worthless stuff. The people... 
The bad animals, sure, we agree with that. That makes sense. We'll destroy all that. The good stuff, though, we have a better idea. Appalling. But right there on the surface, that's the issue. They wouldn't do it because they wouldn't do it. They had a better idea. They were going to keep it and enjoy it later at a great big sacrificial meal. They were going to go back to Gilgal and sacrifice this and sit down and eat it all. Good idea. Verse 10, then, the scene changes and the word of the Lord then comes to Samuel. This is the first time that Samuel knows about what's happened and knows about what, how God feels about it. This is news when the Lord speaks. Verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king. And that word regret is an important word here. It, it occurs four times. The, the, main, the, main, the main focus of the chapter is 10 and following, the, the interplay of Saul and Samuel. And in that section it occurs four times. At the beginning here, verse 11. At the very end, verse 35. And then twice in the middle in verse 29. And depending on what English translation you have, you might have different renderings there. It's the same word all throughout. I regret, verse 11, that I made Saul king. Same thing, verse 35, the Lord regretted that he made him king. And then in 29 twice, the Lord is not a man, he cannot regret. Cannot regret, which seems right off to be kind of contradictory. He regrets, he regrets, but he can't regret. What's going on there? It's it's not that complicated. What's going on is a deliberate play on words, or play on word, if you will. He's deliberately using the same word and exploiting different nuances of meaning to make a point here. The basic range of meaning for this word that we read as regret or or perhaps you might have grieve or sorrow. The basic range of meaning is grief, sorrow, disappointment about something that one did and maybe even a, a desire to fix it, to undo it, to reverse course, to make what you did wrong right. Because you're grieved over it. You see, oh, that's a, that's a sad and awful, terrible thing that I've done. That's, that's the basic range of meaning. And it's you, that word is used here in, these, in a couple different ways to exploit two different uh, trajectories of meaning, if you will. So we get, first of all, the Lord is grieved, saddened by the fact that He's made Him king. He has an emotional sorrow. And it's underlined by the fact that in both the beginning and the end, the bookends of this section, Samuel also appears emotionally moved, angered, crying out to the Lord, grieving over Saul, it says at the very end, which has the effect of of mourning like one does over someone who's died. God and the man of God are emotionally moved. Ugh. For real. Emotionally gripped by this. But so that we don't misunderstand, right in the middle, he's not really upset. You feel the tension there. In the middle, verse 29, he lines up the word regret next to the word lie. To be of two minds. To say one thing and do another. That's how men are, not how God is. 
God never, like a man, God never says one thing and then does something else. God never reverses course. God never realizes, oh, I need to change that, fix it, correct it. I wish I hadn't committed myself to and now I'm going to work my way out of. God's never like that. He's trying to emphasize both God is emotionally very concerned and God never for a minute finds himself thinking, if only I'd done something different, if only I'd picked someone different, if only I could figure out how to get myself out of this. He's never there. When we understand this, we see how it fits into the larger character of God and how beautiful the character of God is. There are two pieces of the character of God that we see here that that should cause us to marvel. The first one (laughs) is that God is indeed capable of emotion. There's there's a long history of teaching in the church that says God, um, erroneously says, God can't feel emotion. God's cold and and, um, aloof. That's not true. He is grieved. He is sorrowed. He is engaged. It's one piece. And on the other hand, he is omniscient and wise. And as Ephesians 1.11 says, always works all things according to the counsel of his own will, accomplishing his own purpose, never makes a mistake. Is he grieved by this? Absolutely. Is he grieved by this? Of course not. Because it's all working exactly like he means it to. It's all part of the plan. And we can step back for a second and say, it's all part of his plan to bring in another king. Like he always meant to do. (coughs) So God is emotionally engaged here. And Samuel is emotionally engaged here, but, but he has not made a mistake. Saul made some mistakes. A bunch. In a long series. And to come back to the text here, as verse 11 puts it, there's a little note of finality. He has turned back from following me. God set up Saul to be the king that follows him. And it's as if Saul has finally said, "Um, I'm done trying to do that. I'm going to go a different way. He's turned back from following me. And the Lord is sorrowed over that. And Samuel is angered over that. And Samuel cries out to God all night. We don't know about what. Maybe crying out for the people. Maybe crying out for, for Saul. We don't know. But it's a sharp contrast with the attitude that we find in Saul. You've got the Lord and the Lord's prophet here grieved and mourning, crying, angered. And then you've got Saul. When Samuel goes to meet him, along the way finding out, Saul set up a monument to himself just like all the kings do, to celebrate his victory. They go to Gilgal. How ironic that this is all happening at Gilgal, that place of worship where Saul was anointed and now is coming undone. Samuel goes to meet him there, heart heavy and grieved, and Saul greets him as if everything's great. Hi! I have fulfilled the commandment of the Lord. No, you haven't. What's this I hear? The bleeding. Oh, the people did that. 
Follow Saul's use of pronouns as the confrontation grows. This is, this is like a case study of blame shifting and rationalization. I have performed the commandment. They brought them from the Amalekites. The people spared the best. But we devoted the things to destruction. When Samuel stops the nonsense, verse 19, asks him why he did not obey the voice of the Lord, but pounced on the spoil. I have obeyed. I did do this. I did that. I did. But the people took the spoil to sacrifice. It's their fault. Does Saul know he's guilty? His language betrays him. He knows he's done something wrong. And he finally comes clean on it down below. And in a sense, looks like he repents. I have broken the commandment of the Lord. I have sinned. Except that what he's most concerned about, well, well, Samuel and the Lord are grieved over Saul and his, and his breaking away from God. What Saul's most concerned about is his reputation. Come back and honor me before the people. Make me you know, look good in their eyes. Samuel eventually does, perhaps because he's concerned about what it would be to, to have a kingless people at this point. I, I don't know. But he goes back with them, settles up God's, God's uh, deal with Agag there, and then the text ends with Samuel and Saul parting ways for good. Samuel and the Lord heartbroken over the king of Israel and about to go look for a new and better one. That's the direction the story heads. And next chapter we meet David. This is a tremendous story. And obviously there's, there's much in it, but I'm going to pull out two Two main observations along the line of, of the central issue. The issue that comes up in verse 1 and then is repeated all throughout. So here's my first, my first observation. <clears throat> God delights in the one who obeys His Word. God delights in the one who obeys His Word. It's the main issue in verse 1. You're the king. Now listen to the words of the Lord, meaning hear and obey them. And what's the problem in verse 11? He's turned back and has not performed my commandments. And then Saul disputes it. I did perform the commandment. And Samuel questions him, why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. And finally he admits, I have transgressed the commandment and disobeyed your word. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Says that twice. But what, what's, what's the main deal here? The thread throughout is Saul's posture with the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is supposed to come to Saul. Saul is supposed to hear it and do it. And he did not. Which is why he falls out of favor with the Lord. However, let's not be confused about something. Lest we think that this is only talking about the king or about some, some high leader, a ruler of some sort, verses 22 and 23, right in the middle, explain that what happened to Saul happened to him because it is a part of 
a larger issue. This specific thing happened because of a larger general truth that applies to all of us. Look at verse 22. Verse 22. In which does God delight more? Burnt offerings and sacrifices or obedience to His voice? It's rhetorical. And then it's answered. You're supposed to know the answer when it's asked, but then, then just in case... Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. In what does God delight? Obedience to His voice. God delights in the one who obeys what He says. It's better than all of the God-ordained sacrifices and offerings, better than laying before God the succulent fat of, of the offerings that, were, that was required by Him. But better than all that, what he wants most is obedience. Not partial obedience, not selective obedience. We see that in verse 9 where they destroy some things, but they decide they have a better idea and save aside others. Not Selective obedience is not obedience. Rather, verse 23, it is rebellion and presumption. God, God is so clear in these, these verses. They clarify for us what's going on in disobedience. <laughs> it is rebellion and presumption. It is presuming to be in a place of higher authority and knowing what is better. Presuming, yes, God has said, I know better. High-handed rebellion. <coughs> Which, look at the comparisons in verse 23. How bad is that? It is, a, it is akin to divination, iniquity, and idolatry. There's a lot going on in disobedience. We, and let me say to you, I don't know how many, there are maybe a couple hundred of you here, and I don't know every single situation, every single life here. But there are some of you, I, I reckon, who are sitting in the seat of presumption and rebellion, high-handed, open about it. Yes, that is what the Word of God says. However... And you're done from there. However, I know better. In my situation, in my life, with the people around me, I know that it is better to do. And God says, rebellion and presumption that is like divination, seeking consultation from demons, idolatry, the worship of yourself. I am against that, says the Lord. Others of us, though, <laughs> it's not high-handed and, and obvious. We, we, we probably more describe it as, I struggle to follow. The same thing is still true, but perhaps not with quite as much 
behind the confrontation. But the same thing's still true. So he's unpacking you for, uh, with a different attitude in these verses. He's unpacking you and showing difficult to follow is really difficulty in worshiping him and not me. It's really difficulty in believing he knows better than I do. Difficulty in submitting where I don't feel like it. He's, he's unpacking you, perhaps with less you know, punch in it, but he's revealing that's what's behind disobedience. It is rebellion and presumption so bad that it is like iniquity and idolatry and divination. There's a lot going on in obedience or disobedience. And notice, I'm not talking about anything in, in, in particular. I'm talking about the general idea of obedience. <coughs> the situation here is very specific. It'll never apply to any of us. But these verses make clear the issue of disobedience or obedience is bigger than just kings. It's about all of us. And God will have to put His hand on you, on, on your life, where it is that you find the challenge to obedience this morning. We are to obey Him in all things, large and small. So ask Him, where are you tempted to elevate your own will above His? Where are you tempted to listen to and to obey the voice of the people, the world around us, rather than His? Ask Him and look for it. Because there's a lot at stake here. There is a great tragedy to be avoided, or put positively, a treasure to be gained in obedience. See if you can hear it in what Jesus said to His 11 saved disciples in John 14. And I emphasize that because if I'm talking about obedience, there's always a chance that someone will misunderstand and say and think that I obey my way into becoming saved. You'd mishear what I'm about to, to read from Jesus. He's talking to the 11 who are already saved. Judas is gone at this point. So this is not how to become a Christian. He's talking to Christians. And he says in John 14, listen to these several statements here. In the context of sending the Holy Spirit to them, listen to what he emphasizes. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Every, every one of those statements, if you love me, obey. And what follows that? Interesting, what follows that? A great treasure follows that. You hear it. How do you get the love of God poured out on you? 
which I, I take to be the experienced delight of God. As I said, these are already Christians that he's talking to. So God loves them in, in a very real sense already. But what he's saying is something, I, I think, what he means about something experienced, something revealed, poured out on. How does that happen? Or how do you get the experience of God manifested, shown, revealed? How do you get the experience of Christ making my heart his home, to use that phrase? Did you hear it? Jesus was pretty clear. Obey. Keep my word, and we will come and make our home with you. What that means, <laughs> what that means, is that we are never going to fully experience, never going to fully enjoy all that God means to be for us, all the goodness that God means to be for us, all of the love that God has for us, all of the presence of God in us and with us. We will never experience that apart from obedience. Obedience. We are never, <coughs> we, we are never able to wait for some gift, to pray for some blessing, and experience all that God means to be for us apart from obedience. Understand what I'm saying? This is in a context, Jesus is speaking in a context of the coming of the Holy Spirit. God dwelling in us. God manifest to us. And what he emphasizes is obedience. If we have in our mind, I will set aside obedience as being some dry chore of Christianity, and I will look for the blessing of God at the pipe dream. That does not happen. I will set aside obedience to God, and I will enjoy the presence and the love and the, the manifestation of God in my life. No, you won't. Bill Bright once said, I said often, you know, Bill Bright was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, and he said often, there's no such thing as a happy, joyful, disobedient Christian. I don't know if, how you parse that out, but you see his point. You cannot set aside obedience and say, I will experience all that the Spirit of God means to be for me, all that the presence of God means to be for me. You can't. We will come and dwell with Him. We will love Him when He obeys us. So there is a great treasure to be had there. The, the outpoured blessing of God on your life and how it comes, brothers and sisters, how it comes is by us attending to obedience. By, in that we are never more... <clears throat> Let me start that over. 
When we love God by submitting our wills beneath His and say to Him, essentially, I don't see how that can be, but I trust You. I will follow You. God is greatly honored by that and says, there's one to whom I want to give myself, with whom I want to commune. That's right. That's good. We are not ever more spiritual than when we are obeying Him. God draws near to, God loves, God delights in the one who obeys Him. Saul didn't, and he rejected him as king. (laughs) And today even, he will turn away from people and turn away from churches and turn away from ministries when presumption and rebellion takes over and religious show takes over and the thinking of if I offer the right sacrifices and sing the right songs and put enough money in the offering plate, God will be pleased. He will not be. He's pleased when a humble heart of obedience dominates His people. And that should begin to push us towards the second point we consider because who among us is perfectly obedient? I'm talking here about obedience as a a remarkably disobedient person. And you're listening to me talk about obedience while awash in disobedience. What hope is there for us? God delights in the one who obeys Him, unlike me, I guess, and unlike you, unless you'd be confused and say, these things I have done since my youth, Jesus would love you and look at you and say, well, okay, give away everything you have then. And you'd find, actually, I'm not obedient. Some of us with with high-handed rebellion, as I said, but all of us, all of us, what hope is there for us if God delights in and God pours His love on and God manifests Himself to and fellowships with and dwells happily in the heart of the obedient What are we to do about that? (coughs) So the second observation, which is shorter. Next is to the larger context of the chapter. The second observation connects us to, to all of this going on with the kingdom of Israel and the search for a king who would be a good king. So here's the second point. Uh, bring it around to how it is help for us. The obedient king <coughs> in whom God delights and whom we need is Jesus. The obedient king in whom God delights and whom we need is Jesus. 
The purpose of this story in the flow of the whole book is to remove Saul as king. That already happened in a way back in chapter 13, but here it is much more decisive and much more detailed, and it launches us immediately into the search for another king. So we get more details about it here, more details about how God regrets. And and when we read in, in verse 28, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. We understand because of the context here what in particular is going to be better about this other king. He's not going to be a better warrior and he's not going to be better at math or something like that. He's going to be better at the issue on which Saul falls. He's going to be better at hearing and obeying the word of the Lord. He'll be better than Saul on that. Well, who, And who is this king? Well, Obviously, if you look at your Bible, you know where this, this goes. The, the king that he's referring to immediately is David, who is a great king, very receptive to the voice of the Lord. And in fact, God uses him to write a bunch of the Scripture. God, through David, pens many of the Psalms. But David's obedience, we know also, was always colored His obedience is always colored by disobedience and sin and the necessity of repentance. And then eventually, David died. So who is the king that we need? And obviously, that is Jesus, the son of David. Always is pointing towards Jesus. Who told the world repeatedly when he walked the earth that his food was to do the will of Him who sent Him. Who always did only what pleased His Father. Who was the perfectly submissive Son, obedient to the will of the Father even unto death. This is the King about whom God has no regret, but only delight. And that's the King we need because He is the help for us in this problem of obedience. But before He seems precious to us, you have to actually want to be obedient. I I talk enough about obedience with Christians or related concepts like holiness and righteousness. I talk enough to know that, that very often this makes Christians... I I know this is true, although I can't understand why it's true. It makes Christians uncomfortable because it sounds so non-grace-oriented. It sounds so much like works or something. And so Christians get uncomfortable. So I need to ask the Christians, do you actually want to be obedient Do you want to hear, in a sense of obey, the word of the Lord? If, if not, I'm, I'm wasting all of our time here. And I have met Christians who I think really don't want to be bothered. Presumption and rebellion. 
Do you want to be Christian? Do you want to be obedient? You should. The treasure of having God draw near to you. The treasure of knowing Him and walking with Him. The treasure of being able to to read. Have you ever read Psalm 119 and thought, yes. Psalm 119. Just a couple of verses from Psalm 119. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And get this. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. I'm a temporary wanderer here. Would you please teach me? I'm a foreigner in a strange land. Will you please guide me? Will you please open up to me from your word truth that is rich and good and right? Do you want to be one who hears and then obeys the word of the Lord? And beyond you, Christian, speaking to non-Christians, all people should want to be obedient to the God of the Bible. That word, that language, often falls on the ears of non-Christians as if it is shackles. Which is a great deception because the law of the Lord is light and life. You are not free being shackled by the word of the Lord. You are in darkness being given a flashlight. You are dying being given medicine. You are a stranger in a foreign land being given a map. The word of the Lord, God's instructions, His precepts, His commandments are good and sure and right. And the one who hears them and meditates on them and takes them in and walks in them is like a tree planted by a stream that even when desert winds blow and the sun beats down and the rain never comes, it still lives because the water from the stream is drawn up. That's what a person who has the word of the Lord is like. You live when everything else dies. Do you want that? Because there's been a great king provided, but if you don't want what he's about, let's not bother. The first question you have to ask yourself is, do I want to be obedient to the Lord or not? It is tragic. It is it is tragic that I know some of you 
are going to answer that question, no. I would prefer to do what I want to do. I've preached a bunch of funerals. And I've also presided <coughs> at ceremonies where we are remembering people who have died. You understand what I'm saying there? I've preached a bunch of funerals distinct from ceremonies that are remembering people who have died. I've preached to living people who are walking dead. Because your answer to the question, do I want to obey the Lord, is no, Pastor. I don't. May God help you. May God help you open your eyes and see you're turning your back on life and you're walking away dead. But if you want to obey the Lord, then the great news is that God has provided a King who is help to us. He is help to us who see that He delights in obedience and that we are so remarkably disobedient. (coughs) We need, do you see your need for a King? A King who first is a help to you by atoning for the sin of rebellion and presumption. God looks at us in our disobedience and sees it as what it is, rebellion and presumption, and raises a hand of wrath against us. And Christ the Son steps in between and takes the blow that you may be free. Bless God for that kind of help. But beyond that, every day that you, Christian, walk and struggle and fail in the pressing on after obedience, there is a great king who has committed himself to make war on you for your sake. To make war on the sin nature in you for your sake. To be a great helper to you. How does he do that? Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commands. Two great ways that Jesus helps you to obey his commands is to show himself lovely and his commands sweet. (coughs) To fight what is living in you that says, He is not lovely and the commands are shackles. There is a king here who lives to woo you to himself. To show you that he is good. He is glorious. He is beautiful. He is love. He shows that to you and supernaturally changes your heart to believe it. 
as you fight to believe it. Not instead of. You understand that, Christian? We are not a God-active, me-passive faith. There is truth to be, to be looked at, truth to be taken in, in, in English, into your English reading mind, if that's your language. And God says, look, this is who I am. I am good. And something in us says, no, He's not. He's deceptive. He's out to hurt you. And we have to make a choice right in that moment. Is He good or not? Supernaturally, He will move you, but you have to be looking and fighting. I don't know how better to describe it, but there are two things going on at once. Me actively thinking and Him supernaturally changing. To show you His goodness and His glory. And then to show you the sweetness of His commands that they are good and right and that they lead to life. This king makes war for us supernaturally. What I mean is he makes war for us in us to renew how we think, what we believe. We need, let me just close with this. We need a king who is stronger than the flesh that lives inside of us. Jesus is that king given by God. Go to him and ask him to show you his goodness and ask him to grow in you love and ask him to reveal the rightness of his commands. He will do it. He will give you Himself to move you to follow His decrees. And that's what we need to grow in obedience, Christian. Thank God that a king has been provided. Thank God that Jesus ever lives to wage war on our behalf. Go to Him. Go to Him. Let me pray, and then you have a few minutes to pray yourselves. <laughs> Lord, help us. Lord, make clear to us what we need to do. Would you come? Would you change us? Would you build a people who are obedient to you? Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.